0: Landline. Hi, Alex. Good morning.
1: Good morning. Afternoon to you, I
0: guess. How's it going? I'm pretty frazzled. Welcome to the Landline Podcast. I'm your host, Alex McKay. Today, I've got Saul on the landline, and we're talking selling used cars on Craigslist, getting caught snorting things in front of your landlord, why you need to be a full-fledged adult to succeed in yoga class. We do a hot 15 minutes on politics. Saul gives us his Valentine's Day plans, and we set our intentions for the week. If you like the podcast, check out others on SoundCloud at SoundCloud.com slash Landline Podcast. Go to TalkForALiving.com or find us on iTunes. Please tell your friends. If you got questions or concerns about the podcast, email us at LandlinePodcast at gmail.com or the mother of all ways to contact. Call the landline, 617-744-1895. Enjoy the show.
1: Really? Yeah Life in general?
0: No, some specific items Would you like to hear about them?
1: Only in bullet points
0: (laughs) Okay The first is the story of the used car Which I think is a story that is Cliche for anyone over 40 But is something that our generation Doesn't usually Talk about that much Everyone kind of just gets a new car Or leases a new car Or I don't know ends up, there's so many new cars coming all the time and so many deals on them. Rarely is the car that needs a lot of work in the, in the conversation, I, I think. So anyways, I have a 2005 all-wheel drive Volvo station wagon that has been in under my tutelage for about five years. Great car, great in the snow, zippy turbo. It's got 180,000 miles on it. And it's been across the country twice, moving back and forth. And it's done a lot for us. Um, But it's basically at a point where I said about six weeks ago that I'm not putting any more money into it. It's done, and I need to just sell it. Sure. Um, So what I've done since then is just put money into it. And, How much money? Well, that culminated this morning where I... So I was trying to... So, okay, so first I put it out on the market at 2000 bucks and said, it, you know, it's got a starter issue. The Kelly Blue Book value of the car is about $3,500 if it's running well and it's in clean condition. Well, the first people to see it saw a very, very dirty car and a car that didn't really start very well. So even though I had reduced the price to basically take the KBB value. And then I was like, okay, it needs about, let's say, $1,500 in work. So I'll sell it to you for 2000 and you do the work because I'm just done putting money into it. Well, people weren't really excited about that because there was the threat that it wouldn't start if they drove it away and that basically it was a dirty car and they could get a cleaner car for basically the same price.
1: Now, when you say dirty, are you talking about Rust flaking off or just that you didn't get it detailed or cleaned or vacuumed before selling? Exactly. The
0: latter. Basically, yes, it has wear and tear. Yes, it's a dirty car because dogs have been in it. But on top of all that, it also hasn't been cleaned out in four months.
1: Okay. So right, right away you were not not really uh, giving yourself all the advantages.
0: I was I was putting in a pretty poor effort. So I got the car detailed for 100 bucks, which was a good price. Yeah. And it looks great now. It's cleaner than it's been since I probably got it. There are still some sort of deep, dark stains in some, some of the upholstery, but whatever. It's clean. Then the starter issue became an engine issue. So now I have a car that I really can't sell because no one can drive it away. So my my point of view now is, okay, let's say someone comes and says, I'll give you $1,500 for this car. They can't get it anywhere. So I didn't really think that anyone would give me $1,500 for this car. And I didn't want to keep having the conversation where they came over and I had to explain to them that it was pretty much a piece of shit and they didn't want to buy it. Because that was a huge waste of my time.
1: Yeah, sure. Are you bored yet? No, to be honest, in my mind, I'm just, I'm thinking if this story ends in you selling that car, I'd be really shocked. (laughs) No, so the car is
0: now at Swanson's Garage in Brookline. I got it towed by AAA yesterday because I said, even though Anna told me, do not put any more money into this car, she's out of town for 10 days, so the first thing I did when she left is started scheduling how I could put some money into it, and I got it towed (laughs) to Swanson's for free. The guy looked it over. He's an honest mechanic. He's got great ra- ratings online, et cetera, et cetera. And he called me and he's like, it basically needs new ignition coils and new spark plugs, and it's co- going to cost you just over 500 bucks. I said, and he explained it to me at length. I said, okay, that sounds great. So I gave him that work to do. I then immediately went online and started emailing all the people who had emailed over the course of the six weeks saying, the car's running great. Like, I'm already pre-selling, right? The, the, the product isn't even out, but I'm pre-selling it. The car runs great. It's all cleaned up. The new price is $3,000. Oh,
1: so you raised the price of
0: it. Yeah, because I did all this work.
1: That's, a, that's an audacious move.
0: It's not, though. It's like it's a new entity. Either you have a car that doesn't run. What's that worth in the market? It's not worth that much. Or you have a car that just got a bunch of work done and got clean and it's ready to drive for the next, say, 30,000 miles without any problems. That car is not just worth the work that was done. That car is worth more, and that car is worth all of the labor that I put into it, all the phone calls, all the ads, all the thinking, all the emotional stress. Well, sure. To
1: you, to you, it's worth it.
0: But uh, does the market agree? Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna see. Again, it's not about money. It's about me winning over the sale of this car. So people started emailing me. Well, what kind of work did you do? It used to be fifteen hundred. So I said this and that. Anyways, about forty five <laughs> minutes ago, I got a call from the garage, and the nice Irish gentleman who's been working on it asked me. Has there been any starter issues with the car? And I thought to myself, well, yes, of course there are starter issues, but I didn't tell you about those because they haven't they've gone away in the last month. So I'm not gonna I'm just gonna try to sell this car without mentioning the starter issues to anybody.
1: Well it turns out Isn't that technically illegal?
0: Yes. Okay,
1: continue.
0: And so basically he said he got the car all fixed up, drove it around the block, put it in park, turned it off, and then when he was gonna Drive it into the lot and like park it for me to come pick it up. It wouldn't start, so he put it back up on the lift, and now he knows I need a new starter motor. And now my new bill is twelve hundred dollars. Wow!
1: So the the five hundred you already owe them? Or no, it's twelve hundred total. Oh, Oh, twelve hundred total.
0: So I'm in thirteen hundred with the detailing for a car. I was told I told myself I wouldn't put more money into, and my wife told me not to put any more money into. It sounds like you should honestly just tell him to keep the car
1: and thank him for taking it off your hands.
0: Well, don't you think now though that it has a new starter motor I can even jack up the price to thirty five hundred and net at least like twenty five hundred on the deal?
1: Uh personally no I don't. Just in my in my opinion. I think look, I think number one, you've always enjoyed gambling and this is really just you putting money on red, thinking that you can spend some money to make more money but in reality what your wife is probably thinking and what i can't help thinking is that the wheel is going to come up green and you'll just lose it all so that's my first take the second take i'd say is that it's kind of shocking how many used cars are out there and how many people at any given moment in time all over the world are trying badly to sell the used cars that they have It's a buyer's market when it comes to used cars, and your car might just not seem so special to someone who's just been looking through Craigslist and has seen 30 other Volvos with similar or lower mileage and no problems at a similar or lower price. So my skepticism remains healthy. All
0: right. Well, all your points are correct. I will say that my price is going to be lower than anyone else on Craigslist. There aren't that many listings and i think the car's performance is going to stack up against anyone else. The miles are higher than everyone else. So, i think i can get 3 grand. I think that i'll end up netting 1700 and i don't think i could have gotten 1700 for a car that didn't run. So, i think overall if i can get i mean, i don't even think i could i the, the last offer before i decided to take it in was 1100. So, i think anything i can get above that with the work done
1: is a positive, right? Yeah, I agree with that. If, I mean, obviously you're not factoring in the, the time and the irritation that you've had to go through, which I'm guessing is substantial. But sure, if you can, if you can sell the car, if you can net over 1100 then technically you're, you're coming out ahead.
0: Well, stay tuned, listeners, on the Volvo saga. It's a riveting one. I think that by the time Saul and I podcast next, the car will be gone, and the, the, uh, I'll make a, an income statement to post
1: online. Okay, because we like we both like making bets and predictions. So, what's your over/under? You're saying that you're going to sell your you're, you're saying you're going to put in no more than twelve hundred dollars, and you're going to sell your car for three thousand.
0: I think that I will bottom out at twenty eight hundred. I think the over/under is twenty seven fifty,
1: and I'll take the over. Yeah, I'm I'm going to take the under just. So, so happily on that one. All right, great.
0: (laughs) So I'm a little frazzled about that. And then I also have a situation going on with the 300-year-old house I live in. Um, But why don't I share the airtime here and you can give us a
1: little update on your news and notes. Well, oddly enough, I I also have had a strange housing issue. Um, Although my apartment building is a year and a half old instead of 300. But it all really circles back to um to an arrangement that I have with Tim, which is that whenever I need anything moved, whether I'm moving locations, which I do pretty frequently, or whether furniture, basically anything that requires an ability to spatialize and a truck and, like, a burly set of shoulders, then Tim's the person I go to, obviously. So our arrangement is that whatever bill I would have spent on the movers, I just spend on either lunch or dinner, depending on the time of day. And Tim helps me do whatever the movers would have done. So it's a pretty, you know, it's a it's a pretty straightforward thing. If it cost me a hundred bucks to have a piece of furniture moved, then that's the lunch budget. And so you and,
0: and you get to eat half of it.
1: Yeah, and drink half of it, which is great. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, we've we've had this arrangement, and we've done it for a long time with with a lot of success. So I was getting a new, I got a new dining room table and some chairs last week. So I obviously the place told me in this case, that it would be a hundred bucks for them to put these giant boxes in my apartment. So I called him and said, if you come over our lunch budget is a hundred bucks. And he was, he was fine with that as, as he normally is. So he comes over and we pick up the, uh, the, the furniture from the, um, from the place. And then we, go in his truck to my apartment and we pull into the garage and we're sitting there with the furniture, you know, about to, um, you know, about to go up to unload it. And then Tim being Tim, um, he obviously loves doing the, the unexpected. And so he takes out a can of snuff and just as a side note, I don't know what your snuff experience is. I
0: have one snuff experience. Well, it's dip and snuff the same thing I've never known. That's the thing they're not okay, snuff so s- goes in s- your nose, right, snuff, you sniff,
1: yeah, basically, if you lived in England three hundred years ago, you would have had a gold snuff box, and you'd never have smoked a cigarette, and you'd do snuff probably forty times a day,
0: and there's nothing more fun than snorting things up your nose, so I definitely would have done that, um, yeah <laughs> exactly, yeah, all right, great, snuff, I know what it is, and I've never tried it
1: right now the last the last time I'd really tried it was. When I was 14, uh, Norm stole a can from his older brother. And I tried it and immediately just started sneezing until my nose bled. And it was just this horrible moment. I've hated snuff ever since then. But anyway, Tim has Tim has snuff. He has a tin of it. Um, he got me to try it. So he breaks out this tin of snuff sitting in his truck motor idling in my uh, apartment garage. So... He does some, and then I do some, and with snuff, you know, it's not, it's not pretty. You just tap some out onto your hand, and then you sort of bend down and apply your nostril to it and, and vacuum it up. So I did that. Um, I kind of bent my head down, you know, to my hand and took the snuff, as it were. Um, and then I looked up and made eye contact with my building manager, uh, this really pretty, vivacious woman in her probably late 20s named Holly. And we made eye contact just as my nose was kind of coming up from my hand. I'm sitting in this pickup truck, and she gave me the strangest, most horrible look, and I realized in that moment that there was no way she thought I was doing anything except cocaine.
0: Right, because it could take her a million years,
1: and she wouldn't have come up with snuff. No, never. Who would? Exactly. So, put it in context. There's this person, you know, who lives in your building, who's sitting in this weird pickup truck with this burly bearded gentleman (laughs) doing cocaine at 1130 in the morning on a weekday. It doesn't look good. It really doesn't look good. But uh, but obviously I can't say anything. I can't, you know, find her in her office the next day and say, Holly, it's been a misunderstanding. I was doing snuff. Here's, here's a tin to prove my point, you know? Um, in fact, if anything, if I had been doing cocaine, I probably would have um, used this snuff excuse just because it, it sounds so implausible. So um, so I'm in a pretty pickle, Alex. I've I've felt weird and uncomfortable ever since then. That's a
0: very La- Larry David moment there, Saul. So what's the outcome here? You got it. You have to... I think you got to tell her for the sake of the podcast. We got to know the next chapter.
1: Well, the outcome, the the short part of the outcome is Tim was just delighted. He, <laughs> I've never seen him so happy as when, because <laughs> he's actually seen the woman before, and so I sort of turned to him in shock and I said, "Don't don't tell me that was Holly." And he nodded and he said, "Absolutely, it's Holly." And he just he couldn't have been more happy that everything had occurred just so perfectly that my my head had been down you know doing this this snuff at the exact moment that someone happens to walk through this garage and it just happens to be the only person in the building who i care about seeing me in that compromised situation so not to mention you are
0: you were all of a sudden high on snuff which must make you feel so anxious so
1: uh, so anxious i mean my my heart was pounding faster um, beads of sweat were coursing down my forehead I was looking around beetily, and we still had this furniture just sitting in the pickup, and I was just so confused about everything. oh God, yeah, so it was um it was awkward, and yeah, now I don't really know what to do. I've seen her since then, and I just obviously pretend that everything's fine, and try to look as responsible and you know non cocaineish as I possibly can, but Beyond that, I don't know if I can risk an all-out confrontation.
0: Well, what would the negatives be? You think she just wouldn't believe you? or it, It's like there is a tiny sliver of a chance that she doesn't think you were doing cocaine, so you should just let that fester in her brain rather than make an overcompensating excuse for why she saw you sniffing something in a truck.
1: Right. There's, there is that that small fraction of uncertainty. And we were, I mean, we went... We were. I was agitated enough to the point where we got out of the truck and approached it from the same line of angle that she had. And with the lighting being the same, tried to figure out if she would have indeed seen my face cre- clearly through the windshield. And as it turned out, she would have. It's basically like there's just a giant spotlight pointed right at my face as I was doing that. No. but
0: well, The only thing worse was if... Tim, like, spilled a bunch of shampoo on his crotch and then asked you to sniff it, and you, like, came up from that while she was walking by?
1: Uh, that's funny, but it's actually, the thing is, that would have been so much better. <laughs> I live in Berkeley, California. That would have literally been like Tim and I were shaking hands as we finished our meal or something like that. Uh, I'd far rather that. Um, the old crotch thing, that's, you know, It's again, it's, it's California, but... But cocaine at 11.30 on a Tuesday is much harder to explain. (laughs) Oh, God.
0: All right. Well, did you get the furniture built?
1: Yeah. uh, The furniture's in um, four really nice chairs that we finished putting them together. I built one chair in the time that it took Tim to assemble the table and the other three chairs. I think he actually finished first. And we were standing there admiring these nice new chairs and then my cat just immediately walked up to one and just stretched and just ran her claws lovingly down the fabric. Oh god. Clearly excited that I'd bought um, four new scratch pads for her. Oh God. Did it ruin it? No, I mean it's you know, it's an ongoing thing. I bought a bottle of what's called Lion Tamer from Amazon which apparently you spray on furniture to make cats not like it, which I understand in theory because it smells strongly of vinegar, which makes my living room smell strongly of vinegar, and I don't like it. The cat seems pretty indifferent, but this is going to be an ongoing situation.
0: All right, what amount of money are you, do I have to sell my Volvo for for you to go up and try to clarify the situation with Molly? You mean with Holly? Yeah, Holly, Molly, whoever you want to talk to.
1: Uh well that's you know, we're we're working at at cross purposes here. I mean, you yeah, know, it's, it's I a I want bet. you to get as little as possible for your car and you want mm-hmm. me to be as embarrassed as po- as I possibly can be. Right. So like but,
0: what what amount are you sure I'm not gonna get so that you can or at least you're ninety five percent sure I'm not gonna get? Three thousand?
1: No, I'm I'm hundred percent sure you won't get more than twenty five hundred. But I feel pretty good saying that you'll get probably south of two thousand. Okay, so you think
0: that if I get over three thousand, will you go talk to Holly? <laughs>
1: um, I don't think there's a possibility in, in this world or the next that you'll get three thousand unless you write yourself a check for three thousand and one dollars. So
0: you're, but you're still not willing to take the bet.
1: I, I have to, I honestly have to come to terms with what happened. I still haven't fully done that. And then I have to figure out my, my approach. Um, and to be really honest, it, it goes beyond a bet. This is where I live and I have to do what's right. Given the situation. Do I want my building manager probably thinking that I do cocaine early in the morning? Or do I want her definitely thinking that she has this really strange resident who makes these claims that he was actually doing smokeless tobacco?
0: (laughs) I think you got to bring Tim on, you know, Tim could bat his eyes twice and have her thinking whatever you wanted him or her to.
1: Well, sure. Of course. And honestly, in a perfect world, she would have just seen Tim doing stuff. And then I wouldn't have any of these problems, but obviously Just this is the way that things work when it's me and Tim, that I was the one who got caught red-handed while he was just sitting there without a care in the world. And I couldn't count how many times it's happened before in one setting or another.
0: Oh, man. Well, all right. You're making me feel anxious about how little I'm going to get for the car, so I think i got to move on.
1: Now, before, uh, it was interesting, before uh, our podcast, um, there were, I had a, a warm up band come on, which was
0: Max. And what do you think? Should he be calling us at, during our podcast?
1: I mean, in, in terms of the value to the listeners, 100%. Everything Max says is funny. Uh, and I suggested doing a five minute segment called The Kennel. And he went into a spiel about how that would probably lose him customers. And then he started talking about a gay alcoholic priest who brings his dog named Clinton in and it just got weirder from there. So, I mean, you know, if you're if you're trying to produce the best value for listeners, both of us should be quiet for 2 hours and have Max just talk about his dog kennel work. But obviously that's kind of shortchanging us.
0: Well, he could call you at any time during this podcast and we could do the kennel. You could just uh, merge calls and both of you would be on his line and we could we could roll.
1: Yeah, I think that honestly Max is he's kind of like a a wild animal in the sense that we don't really want to trap him and bring him into captivity. We want to let him roam free through the woods and then sort of hunt him from afar. So in other words, the best scenario is that Max doesn't know he's being recorded and he's just on the podcast talking freely.
0: All right. Well, I just simultaneously sent him a text that said, if you want to be on the podcast, just call Saul in the next 45 minutes. So let's see what happens.
1: All right, he was in the parking lot of his gym when, when we were talking, so he, he is, might be... Um, he is just yeah. such
0: a loser. He's got to be on this podcast. <laughs> has
1: to be. He also specifically wanted me to um, go on record by quoting him saying that yoga is not a real workout. Me and you, however, are pretty big proponents of yoga.
0: I've never been better at yoga than I am today. And I think as each day goes forward, that becomes true. I don't know if it's a workout. It's a, uh, it's strength training. That's for sure.
1: So, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, I think yoga is a lot of things. Um, all the reasons that we like it are probably the same reasons that Max dislikes it. But It's kind of weird how you hit a certain age and apparently get into yoga because I've noticed that a few of us all sort of relatively simultaneously got into yoga.
0: So I have a theory about that and Tim and I talked about it during one of our wine podcasts. I think that you have to become a full-fledged adult to start doing yoga. And by that, I mean... You have to lose any sense of this is embarrassing, this is weird, I'm self conscious, this is dorky, this is weirdly spiritual, these people don't know what they're talking about. If any of my friends saw me doing this, they would think I was gay or whatever it is that runs through a, you know, uh, stereotypical heterosexual male's mind vis a vis
1: yoga. And- well, true. If you took, if you took, and if you took us at age 17 and put us in a yoga studio, we'd have all those thoughts. and It would be like throwing a kitten into you know, a rushing river. It would be disastrous.
0: <laughs> well, I couldn't even do it in Bend. I mean, when I was in Bend running the pizza cart, I was 2008, 25, 26, 27, and I tried going to some yoga classes, and I, I couldn't wrap my head around it
1: uh we went to we went to one together
0: sure and i did well i actually i did like bikram that was different you're right that there were because it was i liked the sweating aspect of that and that was hard i mean the the thing i love about yoga and i'm jumping ahead here but all the balancing stuff becomes so challenging that you can really kind of sink your teeth into that um
1: Absolutely.
0: As, as something that you would want to be able to do in your living room, on the beach, in the yoga studio, wherever. It's fun to be able to balance yourself in ways that are challenging your inner core strength. So, yeah, the the regular vinyasa classes in Bend, though, I went, sat in the back, was sheepish, didn't know what was going on, was embarrassed. I, you know, I think also it's interesting you could give the single guy's perspective and I can give the married guy's perspective, which is that from the married guy's perspective – I'm no longer worried about what other women think of me in a setting like yoga. And therefore I can kind of freak out and just do, do yoga the way yoga is supposed to be done and not worry about whether I'm going to get up or down on the proverbial totem pole in the dating world that exists on the surface of the earth. Does that make sense?
1: No, it does completely. Ironically, I'm, I'm in that exact same position because the many beautiful women at my yoga studio seem so indifferent to my presence, not in a bad way, just in a different way, that I also feel that I can scamper around doing anything I want without affecting my status there whatsoever.
0: So, yeah, it's yoga's amazing, and Max is overweight, so what does he know? Um, he keeps claiming that he's in the best shape of his life, but then he'll text me from like a convenience store where he just got like a, bo- a sleeve of like convenience store powdered donuts
1: well look max is going to get genuinely angry with with that sort of talk so it yes, makes it, me it makes me a little nervous yeah but. well aren't
0: we trying to you know reel in the wild animal
1: <laughs> yeah reel it in or hunt it from afar yeah
0: yeah okay so but if, so, you, if you want to keep talking about yoga you know we can jump right sorry for jumping around but we we can always edit it out but yeah i mean like I feel yoga is the best part of my week right now um, for so many different reasons, and I can't believe that's such a cliche coming out of my mouth, but it really is an amazing respite from the sp- time-space continuum that exists around you. You get to like step into a different dimension where time and space exist in different ways.
1: There's an undeniable spirituality about it that I think the people who like it can't help but find compelling. There's also an undeniable sexuality about it in the sense that everyone is more or less naked and sweating a lot and stretching and contorting, and there's mirrors everywhere. And I think those two things exist in kind of this um, happy kind of accord.
0: So what, what where is where what is the appropriate level of sexuality in yoga? There's a great topic to talk about because you know, we could quickly rifle through all of the stereotypes, the hot, you know, teacher, the like hot people in your class that you end up like going on a date with or having an affair with, whatever the case may be. The various sexual tensions that exist But they all, I think, for the true yogi, are sort of distasteful. It's much more of a, like, keep your eyes on your own mat. And you're supposed to be looking in instead of looking out. But I think your point about there being a level of sexuality within the practice is pretty apt. So what do you think a a true yogi would agree with in terms of the level of sexuality? Like, what's the appropriate amount of sexuality in a yoga class? Like, how sexy are we allowed to think that it is?
1: Well, that's the thing. I think that we're allowed to think a lot about that. We're just not really supposed to talk about it. And that's sort of the the fun part about the whole experience, that it's there in every single person's mind. Everyone's obviously not thinking those thoughts, but it's just sort of like proper conversation. You're not supposed to bring it up to each other. And then people sort of scold you
0: when you are considering it a place to have those. Well, I don't know. I guess I, already, I said that already.
1: but sorry. Well, there's this, there's this level of, of sort of chasteness. You know, you're, you're not supposed to, for example, I, I'd imagine that the poorest possible form, you know, the lowest bottom of the barrel stuff would be to walk in, you know, as probably more as a guy to girls than maybe vice versa, but to be sort of openly hitting on people or, you know, anything like, you know, like that, just would would strike everyone as the most ungraceful, atrocious behavior that you could have in a studio. Because, again, there's these very sort of chaste things. You know, they, they are spiritual, the way they set themselves up. And that's just part of the fun, that you're allowed to think whatever you want, and you're just not supposed to talk about it. It's not a bar. You're not sitting there going back and forth and wink-wink and flirting and making comments and asking for numbers. Um, But ironically, you're seeing all these people around you, and you're sort of in this weird harmony with them in terms of your breath, your thoughts, your movements, everything. Um, And you're seeing them, and you're seeing the mirrors and everything, but you just can't talk about it.
0: And that... That connects directly back to what I was trying to illustrate in my first foray into describing why you need to be older to understand yoga, which is, again, it's back to Tim. And I don't want to give him too much credit because he's so annoying about stuff like this. But in college, when you and I and Tim would go out as single men, he would basically take the yoga approach of never saying anything and never – and never acknowledging that he had any interest in anything. And that was so much sexier to the available women than whatever it was that the two of us would throw at them in, like, direct, convoluted, direct and convoluted. They could be both things. Direct, convoluted, and, you know, distasteful ways.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. He was a a yogi ahead of us, long ahead of us, and he was able to apply that approach to his day-to-day life and his day-to-day nightlife in a way that we could never do so there you go
0: 24 year old men who are listening if you really want to start getting in with the you know most spiritual sexiness out there you really have to take the approach that you're not going to look off your mat i think is that i mean is that a is that a good way of culminating these thoughts you seem sharper on this issue than me so I'll let you I, I'll let you have at it.
1: Well no I mean you you know I I think we're in agreement about these things. I think that I think that every person, you know, it's just one of those activities where some people will never find their way to it and others will find their way like you did in Oregon or like I did when I lived in LA and you're just not ready for it and then maybe you come upon it at a different time in life and it's just in a very different manifestation kind of there, and you click with them. So that's that's my take on yoga. I think it can be amazing. I think that if I could have heard myself talking 10 or 15 years ago, I would have jumped off the bridge.
0: Now, what's your go-to schedule? Like, are you doing hour and a half hot flow? Or are you doing hour-long, you know, uh, not hot flow? Like, what what's your favorite class and what's your least favorite class that you end up going to, even though you wish you didn't have to?
1: Well, I do. I do the the hour, the hour hot flows. Um, I like I like the morning ones. I go to a couple morning ones. I like the Friday afternoon class, for example. I'm going to that this afternoon. A lot of people pack in. Everyone wants to kind of sweat a little bit before they start, you know, poisoning themselves with alcohol for the weekend. Recently, I've started going to some sculpt some sculpt classes, which are their own, their own animal. Um, much more workout based. You have weights. There's loud music. It's not really you know peaceful in the traditional sense. Uh, I find that out of about an average of twenty people in the room, I'm the only man, and that's a sort of odd experience, which I. Which, it, it's, it's interesting to be in the room in that situation. I'll also say that those workouts are crazy hard. I've done a lot of crazy hard workouts in, in my life. And I'm not putting these right at the top, but I give full credit to these, uh, these women. They're, they're working very hard in there.
0: And looking great as a result. And, yeah. And uh, feeling great as a
1: result. Yeah, everyone walks out happier without a doubt that's for sure. i don't sure. think anyone walks out feeling worse about their day
0: i will say it's fascinating so um our yoga, our yoga studio is great but you have to you go into the street level and you you put your shoes away right there and you immediately go down and it's sort of like a basement and the major problem of the studio is that there's all these bottlenecks at spatial bottlenecks so when you come out of the class there isn't a lot of room to put away all the mats or all the blankets when you come up the stairs to put your shoes on. You can't get your shoes until the last person has gone in the little cubby area to get their shoes. So you end up having like a huge amalgamation of people. There's not really a lot of room in front of the dressing rooms or the bathroom. So it's just it's kind of like until you get to the studio and get your space, you're really it's a little bit hectic. I am fascinated that after an hour and fifteen minutes of doing this incredible thing to relax you, to, you know, nourish you, to explore your mental and physical capabilities, people come out of that room and immediately start acting in such bizarre ways towards one another that the yoga doesn't carry forward with them. And it feels like that's the one part that everyone's missing. Like they're learning how to do the equations in class, but when they get into a business sense, they really can't apply them. And so it's kind of a fascinating element of people just treating it like a workout class instead of like a spiritual mantra. And sometimes I just want to scream at everybody, like, where were you for the last hour and 15 minutes? Didn't you just hear what they said right before we left? Like, slow down, smile, pick your head up, communicate with each other, say, excuse me, I need to get my shoes and don't act like a fucking idiot. I don't how how are you coming out of this yoga class acting like such an idiot?
1: Well, that sounds pretty different from my yoga studio. <laughs> everyone everyone comes out of mine pretty smiling and gentle down.
0: I guess there are some gentle people. Not everyone is mailing it in, but I think that the scene at the shoes and the scene in front of the lockers, it's a little bit it's a little awkward for me. I wish I there's so many clothes you have to take off in the winter in New England to get into a hot yoga room that it becomes sort of a, a, a nightmare.
1: I could, I could see that. I could see that. I don't, ha- I don't have to deal with, with the lockers or anything, which is, which is nice, I guess. But maybe, yeah, maybe they do feel that they go in for their sort of hour of um, serenity and then for the rest of the time that sort of uh, they're allowed to do whatever they want. Like the people who go to, you know, church or temple or synagogue or wherever and say, okay, I've I've been with God for the last hour or two, so now I can go do whatever I want the rest of the week. Right. And then I can just nourish my soul again the next time.
0: Well, that's the real work that a preacher or a, you know, a rabbi or a yoga teacher has to do is convince people to take up, you know, not to just give... Like, I remember being, when we used to go to church in Oregon, we had this great cathedral right next to our apartment building, an Episcopalian cathedral, and we would go. And the, the message that this great um, father was always giving was, a reverend, was, you need to carry, it's not just here, you need to, like, carry this, these ideas with you and use them for, uh, as, as a lens to look at everything you do in your life, not just when the collection plate goes around. And I think that as teachers or as spiritual leaders, that's probably their biggest challenge is to convince people that just touching base with this like, you know, Rosetta stone isn't as important as understanding what it's doing for you and then applying that in the other twenty three hours of the day that you're not there.
1: Right. Like a constant struggle. Right. How do, how do you make them not forget what I was talking about when they're not standing in front of me? Now I had Last Friday, I had what I think of in my mind as synagogue syndrome, which is every now and again, I'll sort of get to this this weird emotional place where I think about going to Friday night services. It's very very unusual. This doesn't happen a lot. Um, It happened in New York, for example, that one time when I went only to find myself in the midst of an interdenominational faith service of about three different religions talking about Palestine, and I just immediately threw up and left <laughs> but but the point is so whatever 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 goes wrong in my mind, whatever you know stresses pile up or you know gaping holes appear, suddenly I'll just start thinking about um about synagogue, and then usually I'll go on Yelp because I don't really know much about where they are and I'll try to find a good five-star one and think about going in there. So it was, it was that same sort of feeling of, of the whole, um, I guess, spiritualness. But the point, I didn't actually make it into synagogue last Friday. Instead, I just went to a really expensive steakhouse, and I found a very different spirituality.
0: Well, should I ask more, or should I, should I, cut, should I cut bait and we'll change thought, subjects?
1: We've talked about religion enough for one week.
0: All right. It's 1255 until 105. Let's talk about politics. But I think that a good bit that we can start doing right now is just like giving ourselves a time space for topics like politics so that we have to use our words economically. And then we can get out of it before it spins off out of control. So in the next 10 minutes, let's do a review of what we said would happen. Go over what has happened and then discuss what we think is going to happen.
1: Okay, perfect.
0: All right. So, So I'll start off quick. It's 1255, and we're off. Ten minutes on politics, folks. Saul and I discussed how well Trump and Bernie Sanders would do in the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primaries. Our major difference of opinion was that we projected Trump doing differently in Iowa. Neither of us were right. Uh, Saul thought that he would have a resounding win. I would thought that he would have a resounding third place. Um, instead, he got second place and was sort of middle of the pack. I felt confident in my projection then, but by the time New Hampshire came around, I had said previously that I thought he would lose his own momentum in Iowa and then lose New Hampshire, and then the train would come off the tracks. And instead, he basically showed that Iowa was a religious faith vote for ted cruz and really trump has major power as he moves forward in the republican primary don't do whatever you're doing it's bad for the audio all
1: right that's uh, fair um my cat knocked the screen off the window that's and i was trying to fix it
0: <laughs> so trump so trump uh, trump won new hampshire he's got all the power I think interestingly for the democratic side Bernie Sanders basically won both. I mean, great, he tied in the first one, but all those coin tosses happened. So, he's he's 2 and 0 oh, if you ask me, especially 2 and 0 oh against expectations. And I will let you speak to that, but I also want to say I don't think anyone who's running for president right now is going to become president. That's my new thesis. I think the next president of the United States is currently not announced their president, their candidacy. Uh,
1: like I said, you love gambling. Well, I think that, okay. Um, so first of all, I think that it's, it's slightly incorrect to say we weren't right about, about our predictions. Cause I did, I did say that Trump would get either first or second worst case scenario third and that no matter what happened he'd win New Hampshire so he got he got second which was not not what the polls said not you know not what I thought but at the same time it was a pretty respectable finish for someone running in a state that would really seem to hate everything about who he is and how he says things all right fair and enough. where he comes from fair enough uh and then yeah he and Bernie just absolutely cleaned up in New Hampshire um, and really interestingly, uh, a lot of people in New Hampshire seem to be talking about how they w- might vote for Trump or might vote for Bernie as those sort of those those two on some weird boat out there and then everyone else you know, standing on shore. So, uh, but anyway, I think that I think that New Hampshire proved itself uh, as, it, as it often does is this kind of, you know, pretty rugged individual, free thinking state. Uh, that And it doesn't like doing what other people do or what other people tell it to. It makes its own decisions. I was really proud of the way that after Rubio's meltdown, New Hampshireites just hated that. They hated the artifice. They hated the sort of memorized aspect. They hated the fact that he was in denial about it. They hated the scripted, you know, component. Uh, and they basically just rubbed his face in it at the polls. So... In uh, in some ways, New Hampshire, you know, it made me it made me proud of New Hampshire. I liked everything about the process, and I like that our little state is just kind of um, you know it gets its once every four years time in the sun. So it was it was good to see. I don't agree with you that the person who's going to win the presidency is in this race. I just tend to think that this is an utterly unpredictable span of events that's happening. Uh, I think that. Bernie is doing awesome, it's fun, it's energetic, it's great to see. I think his campaign has run really well. I think that he has a lot of money coming in. I think that he's got a lot of his supporters have a lot of passion, and I think that he's going to run into trouble in the southern states and he's going to run into trouble as he starts you know getting hit harder with sort of the um, the more sort of uh, far out socialist you know back, background ideas that he's voiced in the past. Uh so I don't think I don't think Clinton's out of it by any means. In fact, I still think that she'll be the Democratic nominee. It's just going to be a lot harder for her than she thought and she's going to come out of it between Bernie and the emails a lot more scarred than she had hoped or imagined. Okay. Uh, on the re- yeah.
0: No, well, I w- so okay, I agree with you. I don't think Bernie's winning the nomination and I don't but I do think he's going to be in it for the whole time. I still think let me just ask you this and I know you love nuance and I love you, you know you I know you hate one word answers but just try in your gut. Let's do the gut test. Do you think that Ted Cruz will be the president? No. Do you think Marco Rubio will be the president? No. Do you think well Christie's out. Who's uh, do you think John Kasich will be the president? No. Do you think Jeb Bush will be the president? No. Okay. Do you think Bernie Sanders will be the president? No. So then we get to Trump and Hillary. I have voted Democratic in every presidential election I've voted in. I find it so hard to listen to Hillary Clinton for more than 10 seconds without being turned off. And I wonder what that has to do with her ability to be president. And I'm having a really hard time imagining Donald Trump being elected president of this country. So, now, I know you're going to say Trump could be president. And I know you're going to say that Hillary could be president. And I believe that they both could be president. But they don't seem like they're, they're good candidates. I, I think you, you're going to argue now, or whatever. I'll, I'll let you do your thing with Trump. I, who knows what you're going to say. I don't think the depth is there with him. He still doesn't have... A true handle on the issues in any substantial substantial way he just talks about how good he's doing and he was like well did you see our ground game in new hampshire you all said we didn't have a ground game Well, look at that ground game well the reality is he didn't have a ground game he just got people to vote because they saw him on tv he never did any small events he didn't have people driving around in minivans picking people up so i don't know i just i think it's interesting do you think it's going to be trump hillary or what do you want to say about
1: that well, no, I mean, first of all, you were asking, with those one-word answers, and it's true, I do love nuance and I hate one-word answers, but you were, you were asking me president, not not nominee. So the same, some of the same names I was saying no to, I might have said yes to one of those if you were asking me who's going to be the nominee for the GOP. Uh, I didn't, you know, but I was, I was answering it in terms of president. For example, I think Cruz has a very good shot at being the Republican nominee. I think he has a very bad shot. Of winning the presidency, no matter who's running against him, that's what, that's what I'm trying to say.
0: I know, but I wanted I want to talk about with you now, See, now I'm interested in knowing who I want to be president because I'm saying I'm willing to vote for someone regardless of party affiliation, but but I can't find anyone I think is worth voting for yet. I I gave Bernie Sanders 35 bucks after watching his victory speech in New Hampshire because I think the things that he's bringing to the table are so important. For everyone, every American to have to hear about the idea that we need to be involved in politics, that it shouldn't be all about special interest money. So I want him to be around saying what he wants to say, but I would not vote for him in a general election to be president. I do not think that he's suited to be the president of this entire country. I'd rather have him be a crazy senator who's leading the progressive charge. I don't think he is a good person to speak to international leaders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So- Who do you think we should be getting optimistic about?
1: Well, I just, I think when you vote for president, you're, I mean, assuming you vote, you're doing two things. Number one, you're potentially voting for someone you want to be president. And number two, you're voting against someone you don't want to be president. So when you say you wouldn't vote for Bernie, you can say that. But I think honestly, it all depends who's in the opposite corner and is your desire to see them not president greater than your desire or your indifference to Bernie's presidency. Well, I So I think it's impossible to separate those two things. Well, you say you can't see Bernie talking to international leaders or something like that. It depends if his opponent, perhaps you'd be much less excited about them making those decisions.
0: That's well taken, but I'm not forced to say either or yet because it's still the primaries, right? And it's yeah, gonna, sure. and it's gonna be 105 and we're gonna do five minutes of overtime um, <laughs> we're doing five minutes of overtime people I, I so so play my little game here which is if take away the party affiliations take away the nomination process take away new, you know Nevada South Carolina for the major candidates that are left Rubio Cruz Kasich I guess Trump Bush, Sanders, Clinton. Who would you vote? I mean, I don't know if you want to say who you would vote for, but who do you? I don't know who excites you. Who do you want to hear speak? Who do you
1: want to see lead? Well, those are all totally different questions. I think I think Bernie's campaign is exciting. I think Trump's campaign is undeniably exciting. I'm not saying that these are people I want to see in the White House necessarily. But there's an undeniable level of excitement about it, and you can see that at the rallies. You can see that in the tens of thousands of people who are coming out to see them. I mean, these are the two people who are kind of moving around the country getting pretty rock star treatment in a way that really hasn't happened since Obama's first run eight years ago. So I think that's, I think that's fun and that's exciting, you know, and, and all of that. I think Clinton... Has great experience and I think would be an incredibly effective and good president. I think that what drives even her supporters a little crazy is just the sense that she's, um, it's exactly like you said, you don't necessarily enjoy hearing her speak. And that's you saying that. But I think that there's this perception that she's insular, that there's this level of secrecy, that there's this level of kind of machinery about the whole Clinton family. That there's this level of kind of, um, you know, disattachment um, and close-knit, you know, air that stops them from being, stops her, rather, from being accessible to people like you and me who would otherwise maybe be well-disposed. So I think that's just one of these really frustrating things about the whole Hillary Clinton person and campaign that she runs into really every time she runs for national office that things happen that make people think they don't really understand her or know what she wants but in terms of that it has nothing to do with the quality of her leadership that she'd bring to the table
0: so do you think New Hampshire was the high high point for Bernie Sanders campaign
1: not necessarily but it's you know it was a high, a high watermark without a doubt I mean, it's hard to imagine how things could have gone better, and I don't think he's going to be, you know, blowing her out of most states with those huge margins. I don't think he's necessarily going to win a lot of the states, you know, based on that victory. It's that's what's fun about it. No one really knows. I think he's going to go on definitely to have some political success this season, uh, but New Hampshire is undeniably a high water mark for him. <clears throat> I think she's If you had told, if you would ask Vegas, what are the odds of Bernie winning New Hampshire? six months ago or nine months ago, they would have laughed you out of town.
0: I think that he will start to have some erosion because I think, I agree that Hillary's going to be way more battered, but she's also going to be way tougher. And I feel that, I, I didn't watch the debate last night, but I read, you know, some blurbs and some articles this morning. And to me, it was the first time that I remembered, oh yeah, she's been doing this on a very high level for 40 years okay if we think her losing in new hampshire is somehow the straw that breaks her camel's back it's there's no way she's just gonna start becoming better in the debate she's gonna shape her message like she will shape her message to make it what everyone wants to hear like her talent as a politician is pretty grand and she will not have a problem basically lying her way into getting a message that resonates with a larger group of people i don't necessarily think that means she wins the nomination but i think she's going to be a lot stronger at being a democratic primary candidate by the end when she's facing bernie whether or not that translates into being a better you know national candidate is yet to be seen um But do you think, let me just end on this, because we got to stop here. Do you think Joe Biden has a better chance of being president than Rubio, Cruz, or Jeb Bush?
1: No, I I still don't see a situation where Biden's not running for president. To To me, it's as simple as that. And obviously, you'd make the counterpoint that it's not as simple as that. But again, to me, barring some completely unforeseen catastrophe, it really is. Biden is not running for president. He's not going to be president.
0: All right. Well, that's where we'll leave it, and we'll continue to weigh in on our predictions as times go. I think that we said, and we agreed in the beginning that there was going to be a lot more that happened than what we'd seen thus far uh, before Iowa. So I think that the, the, the plot points will continue to unfold. I have a business idea that I think I'm going to pursue this summer, and I'm going to try to get up and running this summer. So, a reoccurring topic could be me telling you about it, me giving you a framework for where it's at, and then us discussing it as
1: it moves forward. Okay. I'll with that.
0: Is that, are you. Are you excited about talking about that?
1: <clears throat> I don't know yet. I got to hear it. <clears throat> so, the
0: thing that I'm really interested in doing is somehow reorganizing how the food supply chain works. There are all these local farm-to-table restaurants all around the world and farm-to-table service food services. But really, the bulk of food is still being created, processed, and distributed in the way that it has been since the 1950s and 60s, and maybe even on a greater scale. Things are more efficient and cheaper, and there's more money in the hands of commodity producers than ever before. So, I think a great way to do major changes in the food world is to provide something that they're interested in, actually, that the the public is actually interested in consuming. And that, you know, pizza was an eye opening idea for me. We started with meat pies. You were our, probably our first customer on the meat pie experiment in Ben, but it soon became true that the way to capture people's attention was to serve something that they understood and that they could easily comprehend purchasing and that they would enjoy if you made a high quality product. So here's a question I've actually been <clears throat> wanting to ask you for the last six years or so. All right, let's just talk about that. Let's talk about that instead of my business idea. We'll never get to the idea. That'll be the joke.
1: Well, I want to get to that idea, but first I want to get to this idea because this has been kind of the root question I've had for you for so long, and now I'm happy to just ask it on recorded audio. Why did you stop selling meat pies? It disappointed me terribly when I heard about it, and I've always felt weird about your decision. I guess Tim would... Um, and just, and just to, just to, just to quote you, your exact sentence at that point in time, which I've never forgotten was, and I quote, meat pies can go fuck themselves.
0: Okay. So a little background, I moved to Bend, Oregon in 2008. I convinced Tim aforementioned from the, uh, snuff incident to also move there with his then girlfriend, Rachel, and we were going to start a mobile food business now, everyone thinks of like a taco truck. Well, we thought of something different. We thought of having a exposed stucco brick oven on wheels put onto a custom-built trailer and towed around in a gold Korean minivan. That was our food truck. And even though the units were, were starting to get manufactured and and, and were even more manufactured as the time went on. We decided to do it all from scratch. I mean, the whole experience was just one bad business decision after another, but I at least learned a ton, and I think that they did too. So the and idea well, we- I,
1: just have to, I just have to interject that one of those poor decisions you made was not inviting me to be part of it, and even though I wouldn't have gone if you had invited me, that led to a six-month falling out in our friendship as a result of the lack of invitation. Continue.
0: Yeah, but so look, you're doing so much better as a result of me not asking you. You would never be doing as well as you are now had you had another six months to be my friend. That was probably a, an amazing st- a firecracker that set you in motion towards making something of yourself regardless of what I thought and to prove it to me that you could.
1: Well, I, I mean, the funny thing is I showed up in Bend anyway, <laughs> but that's another story. All right, so... Basically, we decided to go with
0: meat pies because we thought nobody's doing that. We want a differentiated product. This is a perfect town to sell a hand pie full of savory items. They were called meat pies, but really could be vegetables and cheese. It could be chicken. It could be beef stew. We had a whole line, and we took kind of our favorite flavor combinations like steak and cheese, like butternut squash, kale, onion, and goat cheese, like um, buffalo chicken, and we made the or curried potato, and we made these delicious meat pies. Handmade dough. We got a pie press from this Canadian manufacturer to hand press them, fill them with these delicious toppings, and then cooked them in this oven, which was meant to cook pizza. We had bought a pizza oven, and we were trying to cook a pastry dough inside of it. So, for all of you who don't know the difference, a pastry dough is basically a very delicate, butter-heavy substance, and a pizza dough is essentially flour, water, and yeast, depending on what else you put in there. So, when you're cooking pie, you want to cook it at a steady temperature in a controlled environment, so that the you know uh, consistency of the dough is all cooked at the exact same time to create like a nice, uniform pie crust. And with pizza you're basically frying the pizza on hot bricks and the dough has a lot more elasticity and ability to come out edible regardless of all the variables that could happen. So what we started doing is cooking these pies in this pizza oven and just burning every single one and then the inside would still be cold. Well we got past that. We started to realize that if we use certain pockets of the oven we could heat these pies up in a brick oven. I mean, looking back, and this is the first time I've ever realized this, we could have just had one of those tiny little stovetop toaster ovens and made meat pies better than we did with that $10,000 cart that we had created for ourselves. <laughs> so additionally, Saul, the variable cost of producing those things was so high compared to the price that we thought we could get. We were selling them for like 4 dollars And I think if we had really done the math to understand the food costs, the labor, the time in the oven, the freezer space, and all of the, you know, variable costs and direct fixed costs that could be allocated to cooking those pies, we were probably, I mean, I don't want to say we were like going, you know, one for one that it costs us, but it probably costs us three bucks. And we were only getting four twenty-five, so that means there was a dollar twenty-five left over to cover all of the fixed cost expenses
1: that we. we had. You were never going to get rich off meat pies.
0: We were never going to break even. We were never going to be able to pay three human beings, rent a kitchen, pay off the loan we had taken, you know, create more money for our business create a rainy day fund in the event that the there was a flat tire or tim dented the front of the minivan which he did three weeks later Um, and there
1: were many rainy days in bend
0: (laughs) so and then nobody knew what it was i remember this one lawyer guy who had probably seen three or four generations of new east coasters moving to bend at 24 to drink ipas at three in the afternoon ski powder and be semi-employed And so, and he'd probably been there since the 60s. He walked past us one day and he said, kind of the way my dad would, he said, what is it? And halfway into our explanation, he was walking. And he actually did a great thing for us. You know, everyone would say, what an asshole. That guy has no love for young entrepreneurs. He has no curiosity. What was he in a big hurry for? His body language and his movement told us, this is a failing idea. Call me when you've got something that can actually stand on its own two feet.
1: Okay, but think about my body language the first time I showed up for one. The quickening pace, the eager look in the eyes, the outreached hands, the smile licking my chops. Everything about me was screaming out that I knew you sold meat pies. I understood what they were, not only because I'd lived in Australia and I wanted one badly.
0: Yeah, but you were like our transplanted
1: customer – my, my point and... is my, my, my point is that I, I understand there's something inherently weird about selling meat pies just in general, but to me, that was what I loved about it. And to me, there was also something inherently inspirational because you could look around and you could see a lot of people slinging pizza, and I understand it was easier and more lucrative, but I just didn't find that same level of culinary inspiration in the idea. Okay, well, meat, let, pies, meat pies were special.
0: Okay, well let's talk about that then. So, so everything you're saying is true and then the picture I described was one where we basically were out on a life raft and we had to try to survive. And the only way that we could survive was by making pizzas. So if we had had the confidence, if we had had the investment, if we had had a business plan, if we had had jobs, we could have ridden the meat pie train realize that hey let's get a storefront or hey let's you know whatever let's let's sell these wholesale let's you know let's let's freeze them and sell them in the grocery store there was a an iteration of the meat pie idea that would have succeeded but in our weird triangle of ownership uh you know two great friends a girlfriend a lack of cash, lack of any sort of knowledge of who anyone was. I mean, it is—it was the epitome of what not to do, based on what I've learned in business school. Other than to try, the trying was there. So yes, there was there was a path for meat pies, but we didn't ha- have enough. We didn't have enough air in the raft. If we had to, we would have sunk basically.
1: Look, frankly, I've just I've always viewed it as kind of the Hollywood studio system that existed, where you started out in the 60s and 70s and you were making these great, exciting movies. They didn't make a lot of money, but they were fun. People talked about them. People wanted to see them. And then basically you switched to pizzas and that was you just buying up Marvel and all the other comic books and pumping out superhero films that did better but didn't have that kind of magical essence to them. And the only difference in this analogy is that you didn't end up selling your studio to the Chinese for a few hundred million
0: no, I sold the pizza cart to two uh, lesbians who still operate it today.
1: I hope they're Chinese at least.
0: <laughs> uh, I don't think they have it. I don't think they're Asian at all. But um, yeah, I mean
1: that. If- Look, I, I understand that it's easier for me to eat a eat meat pie than it is for you to make it, and I understand it's easier for me to want you to sell meat pies and like the idea than it is for you to actually go do those things. But that can't change my fundamental disappointment in the switch.
0: Well, you and have nothing the,
1: can, you live near Tim and Rachel
0: and they, one of the only parting gifts they got after they left the meat pie pizza business nine months later was the pie press. So you should be knocking on Rachel's door weekly, asking her to please make you meat pies. She's got the recipe. She's got incredibly She has incredible culinary talents. She's got the pie press, and she's got an oven. She could have a meat pie
1: festival for you. I guess part of it is that eating meat pies is fun, but it's also fun telling people you meet that your friends have a gold minivan and sell meat pies in some northern state. And it's impossible for me to lie and say that that isn't a factor. Well,
0: in all seriousness, I think you're kind of kind of latching on to something that is interesting about the the hipster world of culinary endeavors, which is that people choose things that have a high cool factor, but that aren't necessarily a good idea. Although, I, I, will, be, I, I will say that over the last few years, it seems like everyone's starting to have the ability to do both a little bit more.
1: Um, yeah, in some ways, you were honestly just a couple years ahead of your times, or trying to operate a business in the Great Recession, or both.
0: As is always the case with me. I'm like the world's biggest trendsetter, and I never get any credit for it. Have you seen None how, whatsoever. How, have you seen how popular Super 8 film is becoming again?
1: Oh yeah, it's huge. was literally
0: huge. 10 years ahead of the curve on that. Well, I think that's kind of going to be your eternal curse. But it's fun to be different than everyone, right? I mean, it's fun for me to not have I, I hate being part of the herd, and so I don't know how we monetize it. But I don't like the idea of, like, I would never open a food cart now. Although my business idea that we're never going to get to is selling a concession in a small space. Um,
1: so, okay, let's let's hear the business idea. I now now that we got something, this was, this had been just weighing on me for a long time, and now that I got it off my chest, and I heard what I consider a reasonable, if not satisfactory, explanation. I want to hear about your business idea. And then I want us to talk about how it's going to be ahead of the trend that's going to happen and get other people rich five years after you give up on it. All
0: right, great. So I just want to make a blanket statement. If anyone else does this idea, anyone on the world in the next 50 years, I will sue you for everything that you have and I will win because you heard it here first. So people are actually doing it already. Farm-to-table soft-serve ice cream. That's the idea. There's, we all know about the yogurt craze with the do-your-own toppings with gummy bears and Oreo. That's out. We all know that's out. Anyone who's still going to those places is three years behind knowing what's cool in food. There are three of those on every block in every neighborhood, and they're all going to be shut in the next year and a half. Or they'll all be. Cons- Pinkberry, Pinkberry is actually doing really well. Okay, so Pinkberry will win because it's a large business with scale, with a you know quality product. Oh, we got a call waiting. Hold on. Landline. Hello. Hello. Hello.
1: Hi, this is Wajah. Hi, this is Ali calling from Online Education Academy. How are you?
0: Good. No, thank you. Have a good day. It was a telemarketer from an education company. Saul. Now,
1: what's the etiquette on answering calls during a
0: podcast? I think it could possibly be great pod if it's someone we know and I can and I can triple them in. Then all of a sudden we've got an ad hoc new pod. You got Who was it? You got to an answer. Education the, company. It was yeah, it was education Inc. Or something. I don't know. All I know is that you got to answer the landline when it rings. That's the whole point. And, and it very rarely rings when I'm recording. So you should, it's, it's a, mu- a must-do. Oh, you should have brought him on to hear your pitch. Yeah, you'll hear him and you can be the judge of that once the, the pod is posted. Okay, so so we all know that there's the yogurts. There's the new hipster blueberry pear or, excuse me, blue cheese pear ice cream companies, Artisan, Crazy Flavors, Bone Marrow. We all know about them. We all know about the Häagen-Dazs and Ben and & Jerry's. There's now the coconut milk ice cream, frozen dairy dessert or non-dairy dessert, rather. So we've got those, but no one is reinventing soft serve. So soft serve is basically either a powder or a highly pasteurized liquid, full of artificial ingredients, artificial flavoring. It's not necessarily bad for you, but it's not. It's not made with any. Any uh, you know ethics or even food quality in mind so my idea sounds
1: really bad for you based on what you just said
0: yeah i mean i don't well it's not any worse than uh, drinking a diet coke
1: okay fair enough
0: um but you know mr softy or even McDonald's saucer if you think about those things there's there's some sort of dairy in there but that's kind of where the the natural stops so i want to open a pop-up shop this summer where I'm selling a very limited selection of completely locally sourced soft serve flavors using 100% local dairy, and then the flavors could be all New England flavors. You could think of stuff like you know maple, Maine blueberry, um, you know strawberries when they come into season, mint, all that kind of stuff, and then also have, if possible, sprinkles of some kind that we could roll the ice creams in, just like your regular soft serve joint. And also dips. If you remember, like, the candy-coated dip that you would dip soft serve in and make those from scratch and make those flavored with the same kind of stuff, maple dip, blueberry dip, whatever, strawberry dip. So I want to pop up someplace. I have an ice cream chef who is of great – What do you say? I have an ice cream chef who has owned an ice cream company for several years, is very well respected, has national press. I can't talk anymore about that. But uh, that person has agreed to be somewhat of the producer partner on this endeavor. And I also have some great locations in mind that I've been starting to farm to secure a location. I have another group of people who have an ice cream store out west that are interested in getting rid of their... Uh, machines. They also went to Babson. I had two-hour meetings with them last week to better understand the soft serve business. They've made soft serve, and I think that that's what I want to do. I want to sell really well-sourced, really well-branded, absolutely delicious local seasonal soft serve this summer, and then use that cash to continue to understand how I can change the local food distribution world through products that people really like to eat.
1: Interesting so you envision one one place not multiple this summer well there's there are some there
0: are some openings so one idea is one place another idea is like one place in the city and one place in a vacation resort that i have some connections to and another idea is actually trying to set it up immediately as a wholesale thing so instead of going the retail route Find like four or five coffee shops, bars, sandwich joints, whatever, who you feel can accomplish your brand for you. And just in the same way that there's frozen margarita machines at bars, have your soft serve in the corner with a sign, with the flavors, and just be the wholesaler. And let the model that I really would like to do, which is replacing all the gas station soft serve with this local seasonal soft serve, let that model start in the beginning and see how it works and learn from that rather than all of the headache of organizing a retail spot, staffing it, training people, worrying about whether they're stealing, worrying about whether there's demand, just work on like getting a margin on the
1: wholesale price. Okay, so here's here's my reaction. Yeah, first of all, I think people love ice cream, especially in the summer, and that definitely if you're in the ice cream business, you're going to sell ice cream. Um, the thing about those margarita machines is that no one actually wants to drink one of those margaritas because they look terrible. You know, they look like toxic sludge. And when you see one of those machines, the last thing you're thinking about is some kind of handcrafted, carefully made, edible product. You're just like, my God. Or you have a fake ID and you pound five of them and wake up not remembering it.
0: All right, well, but that's, that's, that's... But my,
1: but my, point, my point is, I'm not, I'm not picking on your analogy, my point is, if you... Have those machines or setups in different places, then people are just going to look at it and think cheap ice cream or overpriced ice cream, depending on what you're selling it at. But are they going to look at it and are they going to think farm to table? Are they going to think handcrafted? Or are they going to think high quality? Or are they going to think that it's different ice cream? It's
0: a challenge. I mean, it's definitely a challenge. The question is, can you, there are models of people look at Stumptown Coffee, who I was employed with for three months before I got fired. They have- You are better than them. They, they they, have cafes. That's a story we should tell. Another pod. Let's write all this down. Um, they have cafes. They have flagship cafes. They have, I would say, five in Portland. They have one in LA. They have one in New York, whatever. One in Austin. I, I don't know if they are, they've opened that one yet. They also have tons of wholesale accounts. So when you go to just a, a, a mom-and-pop coffee shop in Portland or Seattle or New York, you can you, they're, they're pulling espresso shots, they're making pots full of Stumptown, and they say proudly serving Stumptown coffee on a sign. But every single one of the people serving their coffee, even if it's just making it in a giant industrial FECO machine and putting it into an AirPod on the counter, every single one of those people has to go through a training session with a Stumptown trainer at a Stumptown location. At least that was the way in Portland. I don't know if that's true on their more satellite areas where maybe there's a a roving trainer that goes to the coffee shop and teaches everyone. So that's a model you could use if you wanted to set them up with the dips, the sprinkles, the flavors. If you can, it's possible. It's hard, right? But is it harder than all the work associated with running a shop? Because I don't want to have 15 soft serve shops that I own. I want to be replacing an artificial commodity product with an all natural local product. And my ice cream chef has already told me, let me just give you this little side bit as well, that it's possible to scale this idea by creating just the sugar mix that you're making with, sending it out to whoever, and then they follow the directions to add their own local milk. And then they can make the ice cream at their location and sell it in their machine, and you're still localizing it, which is. Really, the thing I'm trying to get to, like, how can you localize an idea and also scale it? Instead of bringing chicken from Tennessee and shipping it all over the country, how can you have a chicken shop that has their own
1: chickens from their own
0: area, but is creating the same product?
1: I yeah, I think that's I think that's interesting. I mean, I in terms of the nuts and bolts of of distribution and creation, and obviously, I'm going to defer to your Uh, mysterious ice cream chef who knows far more about it than than I do. Um, But I think that, look, I think ultimately the, the proof, as it were, is in the ice cream that people, people at the end of the day, they eat food usually because they, it tastes good. And because if they're paying for it, then it is better than the other types of similar food that they could be paying for. And so the question would be when they eat this ice cream, I think maybe like fourth on their list of things that matter is where the milk comes from and number one two and three are is this good and is this better ice cream than i could buy from that other person selling ice cream
0: a hundred percent the ice cream has to be the best
1: soft serve available yeah exactly but if it is then then you're going to sell it i'm sure
0: so what are your three most favorite things about this idea and what are your three concerns
1: well, I've given you at least two of the concerns, um, but okay. In terms of my, in terms of my, the things I like about it, uh, I like that you're latching onto the farm and table movement, which is just sort of this roaring freight train. And maybe you don't get the same points for originality that you would have with some of your more trend setting ideas, but at the same time, it's a, it's a big movement. And obviously people, a lot of people are doing really well from grabbing onto that energy. Uh, In summertime, people want ice cream and they buy ice cream. So I think you have that going for it. And you're approaching something which is not thought of to be very revolutionary in any way. In fact, soft serve probably hasn't changed a bit from how it might have been 50 years ago. So you're taking something that's been popular, but same old, same old for a long time, and you're talking about shaking it up. So I I like that stuff. In terms of concerns, basically, how do you get people to know your ice cream? Do you have that flagship place? Are you trying to go straight to wholesale? How are you getting across the idea of the quality? Is the quality even going to be there? And then if you're getting into like national distribution, to me that just sounds terrifying, especially when it comes to, not that the powder is perishable, but when, when it comes to telling people to kind of take half of this kit we're sending you and you have to get these other parts to plug in yourselves. I could see that getting as messy as a melted ice cream cone on a hot August day.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, it sounds like I got to keep plugging with it. I'm taking this class called venture creation at business school, which is completely carved out around starting your own business and realizing it. And the last week you present in front of venture capitalists, not necessarily that they're going to give you your money, but that they give you feedback. So instead of getting an internship at a big company that I don't want to work at, I'm going to do this for the summer. And I think maybe I can have it both ways. Like maybe I can have a flagship pop up place that then, and then strategically have a couple of other partners who I know are capable of serving the product with the same excellence as I am and put them geographically far from me. And even if I'm only selling a third of the ice cream at their locations, as long as I'm not having any problems in, ter- in terms of it going bad or, you know, just distributing it to them effectively, as long as I'm getting my margin, then I could do both. And I could have like a mini version of that Stumptown cafe thing I talked about from the get-go. Um, and I think that that kind of brings me to a point I've, I've come to in business, which I'm proud of myself for, but I'm going to really, really need to stick with. And I would love to have your point of view on this as a business owner yourself, which is there was all this anxiety associated with thinking of this idea and driving around in my car and wondering, do I really want to do this? Because I thought about all the moments of meat pies, pizzas, the beer garden, where I was having trouble with liking what I was doing. And it was out of my control in a way that really gave me more anxiety than was worth the small amount of money I was making. And this time I really wanna say I'm only gonna do this the way I wanna do it, not because I'm spoiled or because I'm lazy, but because then I will have the emotional time and effort available to me to make it great. Like I'm not gonna be open when I don't wanna be open. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sell you know, maybe I sell ice cream one day a week and I make and I sell worth of ice cream, and then I bartend two nights a week, and I get a breather from business school, and I'm ready to go back with some money in my pocket and a whole new idea under my belt that I can work on, but I'm not going to stand at the ice cream shop at 11 a.m. on a Tuesday in the middle of nowhere and not sell ice cream. Like I only want to be moving units when I'm open, and I think I'm smart enough to plan to be able to do that from the get go. Like I think I've reached a point in my business life where I don't need to like leave too much to a guess. Does that make sense? Yeah,
1: of course. Of course it does. Now here's a here's a related question. These business ideas that you've done and that you've carried through. The meat pie turned into pizza cart, the World Cup beer garden, the pop-up ice cream stand. The one thing all of these, the one quality all of these things share is a sort of inherent lack of permanence. The pop-up idea, the mobile idea, the fact that they're not deeply rooted and committing you to one place. Do you think a psychologist analyzing this conversation would be wondering about your fears of commitment to one particular idea and seeing it through in all the traditional brick and mortar glory?
0: A hundred percent. And I think that there's a lot to that. I also think that there is a reasonable amount of my psychology. So let's say that it's 70% that fear of commitment, not being able to settle on a place to live with my wife, not knowing we should live in Oregon or New England or Miami or Costa Rica or LA, knowing that as soon as I commit to something that I'll be officially starting my life and that the only thing that happens is life is that you get older and die And all the fear that comes with that, right? That's why people are constantly like refusing to like settle down in some ways. So let's say that all of those things, which we can talk about at length, are 70% of the reason I make these decisions. I think there's a reasonable amount, like 30%, that comes from a really authentic place of thinking that you can be more profitable if you're not tied down with super high fixed costs. I talked to the ice cream chef at a meeting two weeks ago And that person was saying the reason that you see all of these ice cream shops that have, you know, I mean, let's imagine I'm like not Ben and Jerry's, but Cold Stone Creamery, for instance, or let's let's imagine a local or regional brand. There's a place called 16 Handles, which is 16 handles of soft serve yogurt here in Boston, you know, disgusting lime green, coconut kombucha flavored bullshit with gummy bears on top. Sure. The problem that they're having is that from October to May, you don't sell any ice cream, but you owe rent and you owe payroll and you owe money for your equipment. And so it's a long winter. And so with things like the pizza cart and the beer garden, I didn't want to spend 500 grand opening a sports bar because I, I wanted to go to business school. I didn't want yeah, to open a pizza restaurant because, for whatever reason, that wasn't good enough for me. That wasn't innovative for me. That didn't get my juices flowing. And in this case, like you said, I, I sort of want to beat the market in a way. I think that there's a competitive edge involved here. I want to open up a soft-serve shop for three and a half months, get on the front page of the Boston Globe food section that says, I'm the best ice cream in town, and then I want to like, buck the trend. When everyone else is zigging, I like to zag. I don't want to then be like, yeah, I'm dropping out of business school and opening a brick and mortar kiosk for my soft serve. I want to then leverage that model to prove to people that you can source locally and make a heavy profit and deliver an incredibly delicious product. And then maybe I want to do that with chicken sandwiches or then I want to do that with pickles or something like that. So my goal here is to understand models. It's not necessarily to build something and expand it because as I've learned at entrepreneurial business school, entrepreneurs get bored with that. They like to start things and they like to solve problems. So I don't know. I mean, I do think that there's some legitimate business acumen involved in the reason I do this stuff, though.
1: No, I, 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 I see what you mean completely. For sure I do. And, and for the listeners who think I'm being sarcastic when I say this, I'm going on record as saying that I'm actually not. One of the things that I've always admired about how you approach these things is the ambition there and that when you want to make ice cream you don't want to make money selling ice cream you want to make the best ice cream in town and you've kind of applied that i think to a lot of the things that you've been trying to do it's not just how can i make something pretty good that works pretty well It's even if you know even if you do fly too close to the sun at times you're doing it with the purest of intentions
0: Okay, Saul, that's a very nice compliment. Max texted us that uh, I said, hey, Max, you can be on the podcast if you call Saul in the next 45 minutes, and he said, I haven't talked to Saul in three months.
1: (laughs) Well, that's exactly why we should be reading more of Max's correspondence on the podcast until he agrees to make an appearance. Um, Now, the last thing, and this is sort of a, a... Funny way for, for me to close my about my week, anyway. Um, is that so? I was uh, so I, I started this website a while ago, and was, you know, reviewing food and talking about this different, you know, different like, um, you know, it was, I, it was talking about different products and lifestyle stuff and restaurants. And anyway, long story short, it was it started doing pretty well and it gained some traction and some people were liking, you know, what I was writing and everything. So finally I decided, okay, I'll put in, you know, I'll write a check to basically a guy who knows a lot more about web design and everything than me. So he can take this sort of site itself up to this, you know, this better level and everything. So I, so I did it. I hired him and he, you know, started putting in like logo design and like all the, all the stuff that professionals do. And one of the things he said, when I hired him was that he'd put in all these different security patches that obviously I don't know about that, keep the site secure and not you know hacked and everything so that was great i said go for it we need a secure fortress of the website obviously everyone knows that so then yesterday i just got an email from them um, saying bad news the site's already been hacked what? just like through and through yeah so now i'll cut over i'll cut back in time about a month and, you know, Google Analytics lets you see who's logging in from different, you know, this from our former website, it lets you see who's logging in from all over the world. And I was noticing that I was getting this, this steady kind of daily hit from Russia. And call me naive, if you will, and perhaps some will indeed choose to do just that. But I was thinking in my mind, seeing this sort of loyal Russian customer going to my site, how, uh, you know, how cute that there's some literal like, uh, you know, 12-year-old Siberian peasant boy somewhere in Russia who's just fascinated reading about expensive Michelin-starred Bay Area restaurants that he's probably never going to visit. And in my mind, this was just this wonderful, charming thing. Little did I know that that little peasant boy was actually probably some seedy Muscovite hacker just diligently hacking away. Into everything I was doing, without really caring much at all about what I was writing about. So, like I said, it, you know, does some dousing of cold water for me too.
0: So, so what? What's now? What? What are they? Well, want, what are they, they trying just, to get just, your credit card number? <laughs> like, what?
1: What do they care? Well, that's okay. And exactly, what you just asked is this is the funniest part about it. Because then I sort of scratched my head and was like, why would you possibly want to waste your time hacking? <laughs> It's like this website that, that just talks about like, you know, restaurant stuff. You know what? There's no. In other words, why isn't this hacker like going after like the Bank of America web page or like the White House personnel records or something? What could they possibly in a million years be dumb enough to think that my website could offer them? It's astonishing.
0: And did your guy know? I mean, did anybody know?
1: I'm having a I'm, I have a call with him this afternoon to talk about sort of these the countermeasures that have to be taken, but it's strange. Maybe um, maybe there's just people who kind of try to hack just everything out there. That maybe there's some bot that just sort of automatically tries to do whatever it can wherever it can. Uh, well, we'll probably never know. But it was it was a strange turn of events first to find out that I've been, quote-unquote, hacked, and then to find out, which I don't even know what it means. You know, I don't even know literally what hacked means. It's not like the website looks hacked. It's not like someone's, like, running around with my credit card. So I really have no idea what that really does or how that uh, manifests. And secondly, who would be idiotic enough to waste their time doing that? And thirdly, maybe there's some diabolical, clever you know, edge that they're trying to gain that I just don't see and haven't thought about. And they know exactly what they're doing. Tomorrow.
0: It's sort of the, the end of all these conversations for me is like, you can have it, you know, it's like if you keep going over, OK, they're stealing from me and. Um, you know, if they can get here, they can get there and they can follow me around the internet and then they can like put a stamp on everywhere I'm going and they're going to know everything. And it's just like, it's so overwhelming. Just go ahead. I don't care. I'm, there you go. You know, you at least, at least if they're stealing your bank information, your bank gives you the money back. Right. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's too overwhelming for me to think about. Now I'll are you agree
1: with you? It's 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 crush- I mean, it's it, I've I received three letters from government and corporations in the last 12 months telling me that my identity has been stolen, not stolen, but that my information, Social Security, credit card, whatever, has been stolen. You know, like the Home Depot thing or the Target thing or the Office of Personal Records, which was ironic because I'd never even worked for the government. yet somehow they got that, too. And so my basic philosophy is just I've been so beaten down that at this point, I'm kind of like, you, you got it. Um, someone in China knows my social security number and has probably sold it to someone else in South Korea for like five bucks. And that's just kind of how life in the 21st century is going to go.
0: So how well was your website doing? Like, could this podcast benefit from some cross promotion?
1: Yeah, we can talk about that down the road. It's been, you know, it was, it was, it was doing well. It was, do, it was doing well. And I've been holding off on, you know, on adding content until we got the updated site up and running. And who knows now what will happen with that. But every, everything was going well. I even got Tim to do a weekly rambling wino post, uh, which is going to be an awesome addition. Now, when, so are we been,
0: just, uh, when are we merging our media empires into
1: one? I'd, I'd say that's probably something to work on in the next month or so. We could go for like a, a March 1st rollout. And
0: what exactly, um, do you want to share the website for our listeners so you can get a little more traffic?
1: Yeah, sure. The website's magpie, B-R-I-M-S-T-O-N-E-M-A-G-P-I-E dot com. It talks about food. If people don't care about food, then probably there's going to be less interest. Ultimately, I'm going to talk about a lot of other things on it, too, um, so it's going to be it's gonna be fun. It's been a lot of fun for me to put time into. Maybe it's a complete waste of time. Maybe not. But, I, you know, it's a little like you selling ice cream. What's the fun if you don't go for it?
0: I mean, is there anything better than wasting time on an old-fashioned blog? It's just the best.
1: Yeah, I agree completely. I agree completely. It's
0: like, it looks remarkably similar to uh, another website, I remember.
1: Um, well, no, I wouldn't say that at all. <laughs>
0: No, I mean, not in its content, but perhaps in its uh <laughs> its layout. Um, all right. Well, so let's set an intention for the week. I guess, you know, if people are still listening, then they can listen more. One thing I'll say is that I continue to think of you when I'm driving around in my car because there is just nothing on the radio. It is so bad. I don't want to listen to NPR. Like, I've blown my NPR o-ring Unless it's like somebody get doing a great interview or one in five stories catches my interest because it's about food and it's positive or whatever. But it's like NPR's brand is so tired. I love sports radio and I could just absolutely explode the two sports radio stations in Boston that I've been listening to. They are so boring and so many commercials. Every other second is a commercial. And then I've never liked commercial radio, music-wise. I'd much rather listen to an album or, you know, whatever weird Luddite hipster thing I do when I listen to music. And people who know me well know that I just don't really even care about putting music on. I like it when it's just simply there. So is there an opportunity there? I mean, why? There's no good radio. Do you like? Do you have a radio show that you like to
1: listen to? Well, I have satellite radio, so it's a, it's a little different. Because I just, I hate commercials. They put me in a bad mood. I hate listening to them. I'd I'd much rather pay someone just to play stuff that doesn't have commercials. Yeah. But I, but I. so it opens up the field a little bit. But I agree with you. I spend a lot of time in my car and many of those moments driving, I'm thinking I don't really want to be listening to whatever it is I'm listening to.
0: Well, I think there could be a little show that we start. And, you know, the beauty of the Internet is we don't need to be in the same studio to have a radio show. We could have a... Everyone could have their own studio,
1: as we're proving right now. Exactly.
0: All right. What are you? Uh, what What intention are you setting for the for the week there, Yogi Saul?
1: Okay. Well, my my intention, and this is going to be a question for you in terms of its morality as well as a question. My my intention for the week was to crash Tim and Rachel's Valentine's Day, and just to attach myself to their Valentine's Day, since obviously I have no. Other prospects of any sort for my Valentine's Day, uh, and then I started thinking that this is, you know, pretty. It's one of their sort of last Valentine's Day before, obviously, um, you know, things change for them uh, family-wise and everything. And do do I have the sort of cruelty and selfishness to do that? And obviously, I've concluded that yes, I do. But is that something I shouldn't be thinking?
0: Well, so many questions come to mind. Uh, first of all, do you know what they're doing? Like, you, do you know how how to crash it? Like, do you know? Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely, Alex. I have a, such a vivid idea of how to crash it.
0: Okay, and is it one idea that popped in my mind was you could like pop out of something dressed like a baby and then act like a baby for the three hours to give them a jump start on what it'll be like when they have a baby at Valentine's Day.
1: Well, that's kind of my behavior anyway when I'm hanging out with them when I'm not sober. So they'll they'll get that no matter what.
0: Um. So can you tell us what? Or I guess I mean, what are the Tim? Won't, Tim won't listen to this podcast, right? And Rachel certainly won't. I think we're safe. Okay. So, so you are. Is it at the restaurant? Is it at the movie theater? Like, lay out lay out the plan for us.
1: Well, I think that the talk was this very sort of special romantic trip to uh, Shelter Cove, which is on the lost coast of California, this little town on the Pacific Ocean, Uh, one that Tim's been obsessed with for many years, one that I've never visited but I've talked a lot about going. And we've always tossed the idea around. And then a while back I sort of realized we were thinking about this, and then obviously I hate Valentine's Day. I hate every. Thing about it. I could actually do a separate podcast on how much I hate everything about Valentine's Day. So it never really occurred to me. And then I was talking to Tim this week, and I suddenly realized that, yes, indeed, I'd be jamming myself literally into their car and literally probably into their bed as well uh, in this little inn in Shelter Cove for what's supposed to be the most romantic of all possible dates. And you would
0: just like get in their car right before they left, or?
1: Oh yeah, like I probably presumably I would just set my alarm tomorrow morning, and park my car in their driveway in Napa, putting it at an angle that would not allow them to drive past it without slowing enough for me to get into the car, (laughs) which I then do.
0: Now, is there any merit in you letting them have one night alone, and then are they going to stay there Sunday night too, or just tomorrow? That's
1: a problem. Rachel has to work Monday. So they can't. Otherwise, that would be a great idea. And how far is it? It's is all or it's all or nothing.
0: Are you going to rent your own room or just sleep in the room with them?
1: Well, like I said, probably I would just crawl in the bed with I mean, I'm. You I'm, know, I'm, I know f- I don't. I mean, I like I like paying for my own room when I don't have to, but I don't like paying for my own room when I'm supposed to. Does that make sense? <laughs> totally. I think. I guess
0: Tim Tim won't get mad. He loves anyone being there all the
1: time. Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
0: He pretty much it doesn't matter. He likes hanging out with people he doesn't even really like. Um, that's probably why he's friends with the two of us. Uh, Absolutely. So then, your question is Rachel, and you've certainly offended her many times, or you know, put her on edge, or ruined her expectations multiple times. Where do you think this is on the spectrum? of things you've done to her that annoy her? Like, is this safely below other incidents?
1: Or are you pushing the envelope? I think I'm honestly just being so par for the course. So par for the course. I'm dead center in terms of that spectrum. What
0: about setting up at the bar at the hotel and
1: being there when they
0: arrived?
1: I could do that. That would basically mean driving four hours by myself it's essentially parallel to their car, which would also be driving that four hours.
0: All right, well, practically... It's it just, not, like,
1: around the corner and, you know, up, up the road half a mile. The surprise would be better, though. You have to admit that. Yeah, except there's no surprise already. They, they already know that I'm actively contemplating this. Oh. It's just, whether, it's just whether I go through with it or whether I take mercy and let them enjoy this last special, you know, day together.
0: I would... We, holidays are big in our family but the holidays that are big if we rank them are Anna's birthday is number one and then I think our anniversary is probably two Yeah, and then maybe Chris, my birthday Chris, right Christmas, Thanksgiving or Thanksgiving Christmas and then my birthday but I don't think Valentine's Day cracks the top five because
1: it's a terrible holiday.
0: And if you were to do that with us, like if you happen to be on the East Coast visiting and we had planned to do whatever weird, cheap dinner that we were going to go out to because that's the kind of stuff we do on Valentine's Day and you just happen to be there when we got there, we'd be ecstatic. It's not like we haven't, you know, made it to, to fourth base before. It's not like we were going to have, like it would be a romantic night together, but A lot of times I think when you're married, the romance comes spontaneously, not out of planning. So you end up going out for dinner on like a Friday night and you have like an amazing time with each other. But nobody like planned for it. And a lot of times the expectation of satisfying a great holiday can actually overshadow the fun that you're having. It ends up that you kind of become disappointed. So I don't know. I'd go for it. How could they not I have- think
1: also, I think also there's, there's a certain truth to the fact that probably they're so, you know, they're delighted after spending time with me to have it be the two of them that that almost makes it special again. And so by sort of casting a cloud over their Valentine's Day weekend, maybe Monday night would be their real Valentine's Day when I wasn't there.
0: Well, what's the worst that's going to happen?
1: Tim will yell at you at one point. Like if you get to... I don't even think he will. It's, it's like you said, Tim... Him, loves having people around, and I, I think he'll be happy as an abalone the whole weekend.
0: And if you have to like swipe your Amex at the front desk because of some, you know, incident, then that's always an opportunity, and you can just meet for brunch at the proper time the next day.
1: It's true. I've gotten terrifically good at just using my Amex to sort of pave over my mistakes. In life.
0: <laughs> well.
1: I think oh, okay, that, that so that there you have win, it win. it's a win win for everyone
0: I think so i mean i I think rachel's rachel's tolerance for you is is very high um, yes, very
1: high I agree
0: and I don't know this whole like it's the last Valentine's Day we have before we have a kid uh I think it's the last vacation we have before we have a kid
1: That's well technically that's not true because and this is a subject for next week that I've invited myself on there two-week uh, vacation to Burgundy later this spring. <laughs> so that's your last vacation.
0: Oh, I think it's great. I think you should go.
1: Yeah, I agree. I'm going to.
0: All right. Well, my, okay. int- my intention for the week... My intention for the week is to continue to hunker down and get the most quantitative learning that i can learning of quantitative subject matters that i can at a business school that seems like a really weird intention for compared to yours but i had a meeting with this guy who graduated probably five years ago from the same program i'm in he now has a very very successful flatbread pizza company and ice cream shop so obviously we're a max or a match he also has Real estate interests and this and that. He's an entrepreneur. He's just chosen food service to be his cash flow mechanism. One of the things that he said is he really dug deep at school to make sure that he understood all of the costing exercises, all the accounting, all the finance, all the entrepreneurial finance. He took this class called Buying a Small Business that broke down how you evaluate a business. future cash flows to understand an entity value, all these items that I've been learning. And without sounding too arrogant, it's pretty pretty clear that a lot of the sort of qualitative aspects of business school I have a better hold on. So how to sell, how to manage to a degree, although I don't think I'm really great at that, understanding branding, understanding marketing as a whole other than the the, the finance aspects of it. So I'm taking this class right now that is all about um, operations management, so understanding how to create your product or your service as efficiently as possible in order to get the most number of units out for the least amount of money and maximize the utility of your factory, and another one called management and strategic planning. And that's really a way to understand variable costs, fixed costs, break even points, contribution margins. And I got a 10 out of 10 on my strategic planning quiz yesterday. And that was kind of my first measure of how I'm doing in these classes. And I really want to stick with my momentum in these areas because I think it's what's going to differentiate me from pre-business school me to post-business school me. So I'm dedicated to the Excel. I'm dedicated to understanding the math. I'm dedicated to understanding standard deviations and all these things, even though it really doesn't come naturally to me because I've got to maximize my return on investment for this completely overpriced business school that I'm in. So that's my intention.
1: Buckling down, I like it.
0: So that's it. we got to go. If you're still listening, which we know all of you are, all $3.5 as of last week are, Thank you for listening. Check out other episodes of the podcast at www.talkforaliving.com, on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash landlinepodcast, on iTunes under landline. Check out Saul's website, brimstonemagpie.com, once he updates it and gets rid of the Russian hackers. What else? Any other plugs we need to give? I think
1: we're good for now. Tune in next week.
0: Tune in next week, and we'll try to keep it uh, on schedule. Thanks for listening, and Saul, have a good rest of your Friday. Enjoy yoga. Guten. Guten. Adios.